Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan, and my guest today is Muya. Now, the only way I can describe Muya is as a modern-day industrialist, financier, and perhaps most excitingly, uh, city builder focused on Zambia. Um, Muya, thank you so much for making the time for this podcast. I don't think I can do justice to the kind of portfolio of projects you've been working on in the last decade. So I'm wondering if you could kind of get into it and share an overview of, you know, Nakwashi, Thebe Investment Management, Front Capital Partners, and all these other projects you've kind of been engaging in in the last decade and what the kind of you know, origin story behind that is and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so over the last... Uh, nine years almost, um, I've been involved in a large-scale real estate development in Zambia called Nkwashi. And the best way to think about it is uh, we're building a private city, and um, the core of this is uh, trying to build a knowledge economy um, in the private city. Um, outside of that, um, and this city is being built by Tebe Investment Management, which is um, company I founded about a decade ago. Um, in addition to that, I'm co-founder of Frontier Capital Partners, uh, which is a an investment firm looking at investing in real assets across Africa. Um, my partners and I started that company almost five, six years ago, and we've been looking at uh, various of opportunities in the real asset space, mostly in tourism, um, energy, um, and agriculture. Um, and then I'm also a uh, partner and uh, sort of operating lead at Achille Ventures, which is a, an investment holding company that has portfolio in several African countries. Um, the best way to think about Akili is that it's a, it's a full-stack venture builder. Um, so it builds businesses from the ground up. It can partner with existing businesses uh, to scale them up uh, or re, uh, repurpose them. Um, we have been looking at various investments across uh, places like Kenya, Uganda, Ghana, Senegal, uh, Nigeria, um, Zambia, and uh, it's, a, it's a very exciting business to be a part of as well. Fantastic. So Nakwashi's been, um, the, the development started about nine years ago. Uh, I'm wondering, could you share the story of what those nine years have kind of entailed, what some of the key milestones you guys have reached are, and what some of the key challenges you faced in those uh, nine years? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the things that we've been focused on developing over those nine years have been um, sort of like infrastructure related. So building roads, building streets, building um, water infrastructure, power infrastructure, uh, we built a dam, we built public parks, um, we built a school, um, you know, we built technology to support the virus um, sort of like parts of this business. So payments, for instance, ed tech. Um, yeah, so, you know, um, it's, it's been a lot of like physical 
movement of earth in order to to build the city. The biggest challenge we've had is just like building in Zambia the last decade has been quite challenging because Zambia's economy imploded about six years ago. So um, dealing with that whilst undertaking something very capital intensive has been quite challenging. Interesting. How uh, could, could you share more context on like the recent economic history of Zambia in the last 25, 30 years? Sure. Um, so Zambia got, in, got its independence uh, almost 60 years ago. Um, and this was in a Cold War context, right? So number one, um, and I think this was true for a lot of countries across the world in what was formerly, you know, sort of like colonial Asia and colonial Africa. Um, you get independence, but you're very cynical and, and skeptical of the West because you, you've you just spent 70, 80, sometimes, you know, more than 100 years um, under the uh, suzerainty, right? So you're quite skeptical about their intentions. On the flip side, um, the East is quite eager to uh, you know, gain your favor and provide various sort of means of support, um, so scholarships for your students, they help you with infrastructure and things of that sort. So in that context, Zambia swung left and became a socialist country. And it remained socialist for almost 30 years, during which time Zambia's economy uh, imploded because productivity levels came down, um, its access to ports was seriously curtailed, um, via the south, because Zimbabwe at that time was still southern Rhodesia um, and embargoed Zambia. So Zambia didn't have access to, um, you know, the ports in South Africa um, via Zimbabwe. And and so that really constrained Zambia's ability to export goods. Um, and so its economy effectively imploded. And then post that, the second 30 years, um, involved the restructuring of Zambia's economy, um, liberalization, so basically the formation of actual markets, and the economy recovered quite significantly um, as, a, as a result of these interventions up until about 10 years ago uh, when Zambia went on a very sort of debt binge um, that resulted in its fiscal situation deteriorating quite significantly. So we experienced um, three cycles of devaluations over uh, probably six years um, and a significant amounts of inflation. Um, and and as, a, as a consequence, purchasing power in real terms diminished quite aggressively. Um, so countries now in a situation where it is starting to deal with the problems of the past. Um, so its debt is, um, uh, the government's trying to negotiate for a restructuring of the debt because uh, when a new government come in um, and um, that restructuring of the debt should um, give some fiscal space uh, that allows more stability uh, in, in um, the government's finances. And hopefully that then allows private players like ourselves to, um, 
to be able to operate in this economy with with less stress. Interesting. Um, I have a friend whose family does business in uh, well, one does business in Turkey, another one does business in Pakistan, and they've gone through uh, cycles of devaluation and you know changes in currency as well. Um, also, you know, in in Pakistan's case, they have another sovereign debt situation. They've been to the IMF, you know, seventeen times or something. Um, we were talking about how you know the most successful business operators in these regions seem to find a way to adapt nonetheless. And I'm wondering, you know, given that you guys are pushing forward and persisting, what is the motion to adapt look like? Like, what, how do you guys navigate, for example, um, uh, those devaluations and other external factors uh, impacting, you know, the, the efficacy of a project? Um, well, I think for the most part, you know, once you're fully committed, um, you, you have very little... Uh, room to maneuver, you, you know, you either swim or you sink, right? And so primarily the means by which you uh, ensure that you can swim involve being able to adjust your business model uh, and your revenue levers to accommodate the new reality, right? So for instance, in our case, that meant uh, you know, so like going from uh, five-year payment plan for our um, uh, plot sales, right? Because we, we sell our properties on payment plans. So we went from offering people five-year plans to offering people up to 20-year plans, Right. Um, and what this allowed was for our uh, our customers to have smaller monthly amounts to pay us, right, versus the larger amounts. So, so that accommodated the new economic reality. Uh, that on a net-net basis obviously means that you need a higher volume of sales to support um, sort of like par, right, cash flow. Um, so that puts a lot more strain on your marketing and sales um, conversion channels. Um, but that's just the reality, you know. So that's what we did. Um, and I think that worked quite well for us. Fantastic. Ooh, narrowing in on... Uh the payment plan apparatus. I'm wondering, what do you, I had a conversation with a mutual friend of ours, Curtis Lockhart at the Charles City Institute recently. And one of the things that he was talking about was uh, mortgage infrastructure across the continent as a whole, really. Um, I know every, every market has its own nuances. I was wondering, what, what are your kind of thoughts on the current state of that right now? So could you just repeat that question? Yes. So w what are your thoughts on the current um, state of the art when it comes to uh, mortgages in um, various African countries? Got it. Um, so there really isn't much of a mortgage market in many African countries. Um, for instance, in Zambia, there are probably fewer than 70,000 mortgages. Um, and one of the reasons is that in many African countries, interest rates are just far too high to support um, like mortgage uh, 
origination. So, for instance, in Zambia, interest rates on uh, on a mortgage would typically be around uh, like twenty percent per annum at the at the low end, and the average person just does not find that attractive, uh, and nor should they, because it means by the time they finish paying for their home over, say, a fifteen-year um, term, they would have actually, you know, paid several times over the uh, the value of their home in, in mortgage repayments. So um, most people intuitively sort of like understand that uh, that sort of capital is just too expensive for that sort of investment. And so instead, they choose to use their own equity to build their homes or they use short-term money, right? So for instance, they might use their equity to build a home um, up to a certain level. Say, for instance, that could be, um, you know, to to build up until they have to roof it, right? Um, and then to finish off all the interiors and plastering and all those things that might take a short-term, say, three- to five-year loan from a bank to finish that, those portions off. And so as a consequence, they're basically saying that, you know, they 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 um, don't overexpose themselves to leverage. So the reason why interest rates are generally high is that um, in, in many African countries, um, the government is the largest borrower and the capital pools available to it to borrow from are quite limited. Uh, the sort of like savings depth isn't very significant. Pension usage isn't very broad. Um, insurance pools of capital aren't deep enough. And so what this means is that the in the scarcity of capital, the price of money just is higher. And because that's risk-free money, it means that any... Um, any capital exposed to risk um, ultimately has a, a cost that is a premium above risk-free. And the floor on that is going to be quite high, right? So we're talking 15 20%. And therefore, uh, the interest rates on mortgages are likely to be you know, 20 25% per annum. Um, and that's what I think causes that constraint. Interesting. I know that Charlie Robertson cites um, fertility as one of the key levers for increasing savings depth, um, in, particular domestic, in particular domestic savings depth within a uh, region, therefore lowering cost of capital. I'm wondering, are there any other hypothetical experiments or um, levers that you see as being possible for unlocking capital at a lower rate for this particular use case um, in these regions which now have this higher cost of capital? Um, so I think part of the challenge has been that the financial system for a long time, uh, didn't really bank the informal sector. And as a consequence, pools of capital, which do exist, right. Um, remained unbanked and, and we're not offering a sort of like compound, um, so the compounding effect that the rest of the system would um, benefit from. Now, with the emergence of things like mobile money, I think that will change because 
people who demand for yield on their money, right? And increasingly that is the case. So if you look at Kenya as an example, um, there's a lot more depth in the financial services ecosystem because of the extent which mobile money is a part of the everyday lives of pretty much everyone, right? And even people with very low amounts of um, savings still want to gain a yield on their money. And so uh, they sort of like use financial services products to achieve that. And I think it's one of the reasons why Kenya's mortgage market is actually deeper than Zambia's, despite them not being so different from a sort of like uh, GDP perspective. Interesting. And so one thing you mentioned when it comes to the Nakwashi roadmap was building certain types of tech in-house that specifically will service the city. One thing I think you may have mentioned was fintech as well. Um, is that is, is that a lever that kind of exists for you guys in terms of uh, not just additional revenue, but also um, the capacity to underwrite things better and therefore unlock mortgages for users um, slash uh, home buyers in, in your city? Um, indirectly, yeah. So one of we we attempted an experiment uh, a few years ago where we partnered with um, sort of talent incubators, for lack of a better term. Um, and what they were doing is um, enabling Zambians to participate in a in a sort of like coding boot camp, where at the end of the boot camp they would have learned how to code, right? And then they'll get jobs uh, with uh, global uh, technology businesses. And the goal in sort of like trying to facilitate for that was to enable these people to earn higher incomes than would be typically available in Zambia at sort of like their level of experience. And then for those higher incomes um, to be pulled together in sort of like, um, say, a credit union, and for that credit union to be a means through which um, uh, sort of lower cost um, financing would be extended to, to these folks and therefore would have solved for the uh, affordability issue that exists in the rest of the economy. Um, the challenge, of course, was that COVID happened and then this sort of like stopped, ceased to be a priority for us and our partners. Um, but that was the intent. Interesting. Um, one project that comes to mind here that uh, n- isn't income-based but is somewhat similar is uh, Geofinance. We had the founder of Geofinance, uh, Zach Marks, on the podcast recently. And one of the things that he was talking about was he previously worked at a micro-lending company that has fairly extensive um, operations across Asia and across Africa. They have probably lent, I think, five billion plus uh, dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is not a massive amount, but it's pretty significant for a micro lending firm. Um, And one of the things that he's spoken about is it's generally difficult for foreign money to find itself um, the right railroad, so to speak, to enter these markets and then therefore go to those who would use it most efficiently, be it for consumption like like housing, albeit for, um, in their case, they're focused on kind of small to medium-sized businesses within these regions that can't typically get bank loans. Um, in terms of exploring other foreign capital pools, is that something that is a part of uh, the longer-term 
roadmap here as well. One and two, it strikes me that uh, Nakashi in general and kind of like your your ethos is very much influenced by you know uh, networks in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And I think that's fantastic in terms of you know importing ideas, external capital, etc. Could you kind of share more on that philosophy um, slash approach that you have of you know coordinating these these outside forces to help um, with with your projects? Yeah, I mean, so from where we are sitting, the the challenge has always been that a project like this requires significant, so like. Uh, scale capital and that sort of capital is not available or at least historically has not been available in Zambia and so it, it sort, of, sort of been a very pragmatic and, and rational thing to do to um, look elsewhere in the world especially amongst people who are very sympathetic to the charter city movement um, to see if we can raise money from them and for very specific things we have you know been fairly successful at doing that so for instance the school has been to a large extent financed by angel investors from you know places like the us like the silicon valley um the gulf um so you know that's been super um like useful on the back on the other hand rather um the more capital intensive things that we do um, are entirely locally funded. Um, and we've been using our own capital from um, sales of property to finance those type of uh, components of the, the larger scale project. Um, in terms of how I think uh, sort of foreign money can be more um, involved, I think one of the things I've learned is that having high degrees of alignment uh, in purpose is probably the answer to that. And, you know, initially I thought that Web3 um, could be a means through which those flows could be um, redirected to Africa. But now I, you know, I don't necessarily think that's the case and, and, and I think it's because even within the context of the Web3 movement, a lot of the um, places that people allocate capital are quite mimetic, right? So by that, I mean, um, you know, like digital art was, you know, a fad and whilst it was raging, people were really happy to apply a lot of money um, to getting these sort of like non-fungible uh, tokens, right? So NFTs. Um, and if you were an artist in Africa, you were probably able to sell quite a lot of um, your art in exchange for uh, for ETH or things like that. Um, but that didn't particularly last long, right? Um, so because funding Charter City projects is still very niche, even in Web3, it's unlikely that that will be where the foreign money comes from. Um, what I'm starting to see, though, is that there are other ways potentially of, of um, redirecting capital. And I actually think green economy is probably right now um, the most straightforward because uh, there's quite a lot of capital that's um, going into things like reforestation and afforestation. Um, 
And I actually think that on the basis of things of that sort, you can actually build settlements. Uh, there wouldn't be like very large scale cities. Uh, there'll be smaller agglomerations. Um, but, you know, there'll be agglomerations which are funded in order to um, help keep these forests sustainable, right? And and the same would be true of, of blue carbon, right? So you could have settlements on lakesides or oceans and um, that could help um, finance the development of, of smaller towns um, to make sure that the communities that are there um, feel the benefit of having these these carbon projects in the communities. Um, so I think it's things like that where there's a fundamental need for capital to be deployed in a very specific um, subsector of the economy. Um, and then, you know, that deployment of the capital requires an agglomeration of people um, to ensure that the investment remains solid. Um, so another example of this would be mining, right? So if you have a large scale mine in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, you need to build a town to support the miners who will work in the mine. Right. So the mine will probably have maybe something like 10,000 people um, living and working in its vicinity. And that's a pretty meaningful town. Right. Um, but it exists solely because this large scale um, capital investment uh, has forced it into being. And I think that that ultimately ends up being how these things get developed. Um, education is another example of that. And that's why in our case, we're. Um, looking to build a university and, and schools. Fantastic. Can you share more on the philosophy behind um, the education institutions you're building in uh, Nakwashi? Like kind of where, like, like just the ideas that are kind of behind that one, but also, um, yeah, the main, the main purposes or main ideas behind that, I guess. Sure. Um, so the main purpose behind the idea of the university is that, and the school, uh, is that, you know, we're, we're designing and building a city for 100,000 people. Um, and it is uh, important for those people to have social amenities available to them that enable um, them to have a sort of like holistic life here. And some of those amenities include things like, you know, wastewater and treatment or or electricity um, but education is another one right and so we, we see education provision as um, part of our uh, mandate as a service provider to our community in terms of the overall philosophy what we're trying to do is um, really scale up the quality of talent that is uh, coming out of Zambia and so the philosophy of our schools are largely uh, sort of like centered around uh, this what we call the explorer ethos, and and the explore the explorer ethos is largely about having curiosity, um, having uh, so finding systematic ways to solve problems, uh, to improve yourself, um, to be your best. Uh, to be autonomous as, a, as opposed to sort of like very dependent. Um, so, you know, with the school at least, um, we found that that's been very effective in in, um, in building very adventurous, very capable uh, youngsters. Um, and it's something we want to 
see happen with the university as well once we get started building that. Incredible. How do you set performance goals or um, how do you kind of measure the feedback loop for human capital development um, within a region? Um, that's a big question. Um, so within the context of, say, the school, um, we, we measure human capital development on the basis of academic outcomes, right? So A, um, what is the average grade of our students, right? Um, what is the average, uh, you know, like ability for this person to understand the content they're taught, not from a root basis, but from a sort of like first principles basis. Um, so, you know, that's, that's about testing, right? From a societal basis, I think ultimately this is expressed through the sophistication of a society itself, A. B, its ability to develop its own systems, its ability to like create its own public goods without over-reliance on um, so like foreign uh, labor, right? Um, and so if you look at a lot of countries in Africa, you will note that uh, a lot of the, like, the large infrastructure projects uh, aren't only just funded uh, by foreign capital, but the labor is often also foreign. So I think what that signals is that locals aren't participating in the skills transfer that they really ought to. And, and so they aren't learning how to build um, sort of the infrastructure that the society needs um, to just exist. Um, so I, I think... I think skills would then become the basis for that, right? So um, I think a lot of people would say things like um, productivity is probably a good measure for it. Um, but if the productivity is all rented, right, because of all the skills are held by non-residents, um, then you might have a very productive society, um, but it's not one that can actually produce for itself. Do you see what I mean? Totally. So in that case, how do you align the uh, needs of a labor market that, for example, uh, entails or requires or benefits from a lot of additional infrastructure investment and a lot of those hard skills? How do you align, say, you know, that specific uh, mandate or requirement of skill sets with the content that the Explorer School kind of uh, teaches? Do you have a lot of control over the syllabi and the curriculums and stuff, and are you focusing a lot on hard skills of that sort, or is that something that's kind of coming later in the pipeline? It's a mix of things. Um, we teach the Cambridge um, IGCSE curriculum. Um, so it's a sort of like standardized international school curriculum that we teach. Um, but we make augmentations to that on the basis of our um, like school ethos, right? And that is expressed in things like the extracurriculars that we offer our learners. Um, it's things like our pedagogy, right? So how we do the teaching. Um, it's things like um, the supplemental classes we give, which aren't part of that curriculum. So for instance, uh, we recently started doing a money management um, a series of classes with our students. And, you know, these are really young kids, like, eight-year-olds, six-year-olds. Fantastic. Uh, but they're asking really good questions. So, for instance, um, a bank is our partner on that. Uh, it's called Standard Bank. And 
um, they sent us some sort of financial literacy experts to do so help the kids and the kids asked very interesting questions like before you teach us tell us about your own investments like why should we trust what you have to say like what have you invested in you know and are you happy with it and i think that's the sort of like mindset we're trying to build where the kids just don't accept what they're told because a person is older uh, or is in a position of authority then they sort of like break down um, what they're told to a first principles basis in order to understand whether it's credible or not, and then you know, build a framework for um, for understanding it, you know. And and so, you know, those are things that we're doing outside of just the curriculum. It's, it's just the approach that we've taken. Nice. It seems that those kids have done more diligence on Standard Bank than most um, LPs in Web3 funds did in the last couple of years, which I think uh, is... A very bullish sign. I, I love to hear that. Um, okay, so if, if we're moving on from uh, the Nakwashi project, actually, before we move on, I'll ask one um, final question. In the last, so so we were talking about the kind of landscape of building these kind of core pieces of infrastructure that enable the city to exist. Uh, you mentioned, you know, water treatment facilities, power plants, etc. Um, in terms of the last year, year and a half, what are some of the big lessons you've learned beyond just navigating the uh, economic downturn but what are the big lessons you've kind of learned in terms of you know operationally making these things happen in an effective manner or um just things that have surprised you in the last year and a half Mm. um i think the most important thing is, is resilience and like a willingness to just try new things and you know in pursuit of adapting because when an economy is changing quite rapidly um, and you don't know where your basis is anymore you have to recreate a new one and in in doing so uh, like you won't know until you do right and and so the way you do that is by um, experimenting a lot right so you have to uh, execute a wide range of experiments and you have to iterate quite a lot until you you figure out um, like what the new market fit is right and and so that's the thing that we've found to be very useful um, is adapting to figure out where the new fit is and you know in a sense we know this because people talk about product market fit all the time but sometimes what you know is, is lost is that you might reach product market fit, right? But if the market changes, like the product has to change, right? And then you find the fit again. And so I think that's the methodology that I'll suggest uh, to anyone sort of like going through something like that. Interesting. And, and in terms of um, maybe more economic or pragmatic um, observations on the market for services that you guys have tapped into, whilst building the city and kind of engaging in certain kind of core infrastructure building functions. Do you have any observations on that landscape, any inadequacies that you think listeners would probably like to hear about sort of as they're kind of navigating opportunities to tackle something that may be broken or not as good as it could be? Hmm. Do you mind reframing the question? Of course. Yeah. So, um, we were talking about power plants before, for example, right. Yeah. And, um, we've, you, you've engaged in kind of building other things, um, 
for the city to kind of come to fruition. And I'm wondering, as you've looked at that landscape, there are obviously certain new business lines that you guys will want to kind of integrate into your own um, organization. But I'm wondering in terms of opportunities that exist because the current provision of those services is not um, up to standard, perhaps, do you see any opportunities that exist um, around uh, this space, if that makes sense? Like any frustrations or difficulties with interacting with some of these um, um, services? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think energy is like uh, an obvious one. So, for instance, in South Africa right now, they have what you know what's called load shedding, right? So, for six to twelve hours in a given day, um, homes don't have access to to power. Um, factories don't have access to power, and that you know obviously is very disruptive to people's lives. Uh, it's very you know adverse. Um, to sort of like productivity. Um, but it's also a huge opportunity because it would take the state utility in South Africa several years to correct these sort of like structural problems that they are facing. So, you know, the deployment of new power stations, for instance, right? And that creates an opportunity for for businesses to to solve that problem by providing off-grid solutions, right, or microgrids. Um, and I know that some people are doing this. So, you know, they'll go to homes and they'll offer this off-grid kit and it's wrapped around a credit uh, product. So they're paying for it over five, 10 years. Um, so it feels like it's a utility bill, um, even though it's just like amortizing a capital uh, investment of your own. But the point is the person has power, right? Um, so... You know that's something like I, it's something I mentioned earlier in the in the conversation, and it's as something we're doing ourselves. But it's not something that would. It is something that doesn't have to be limited to just in Kwashi. That sort of product can be offered anywhere where people need energy, and they need it to be reliable and they need it to be affordable. Um, so you know that's a, that's an example. The second example would be around things like property tax collection. Um, a lot of municipalities in Africa are really bad at collecting taxes. Um, and that's something we've become quite good at doing in terms of like collecting money that's owed to us by our uh, customers. And, you know, that's a technical problem, right? So in our case, we feel like, you know, if, if councils were really um, serious about remedying their collections capabilities, all they need to do is just use tech to enable that um, uh, capacity to be developed. Um, on the back end, though, people would definitely be expecting services to be given to them. But again, the tech is a means of ensuring that people have got uh, a means of requesting service provision and, and sort of like um, being able to complain when it's not provided to them. So, you know, t again, technology is an enabler for. Um, for capacity in that instance. So I think those are like examples of ways that, uh, you know, these, these problems could be solved for. Very interesting. I think um, a few companies come to mind here as not necessarily solutions here, but inspirations perhaps. Um, one is, uh, you know, like in, in America, TurboTax is a very big thing in contrast in the UK. It's not because the government's kind of got a simpler, I would say, to file kind of tax system. Um, but in, in the same way that a lot of pieces of software find themselves in different forms 
in emerging markets, say in India, WhatsApp's very popular, right? Um, I wonder whether there's some inspiration that can be taken from a combination of, as you mentioned, uh, TurboTax in terms of tax payments, but then also um, wrapping that around um, that stronger feedback loop or some, uh, as you mentioned, core communication channel with governments. That sounds very exciting. And hopefully some enterprising listener uh, can reach out to you, maybe trial that with you guys at some point. I don't know. Um, uh, two, two other cool companies here. One is Odyssey Energy Partners. They um, have a cool, uh, it's, it's almost like angel list, but for bottoms up off-grid energy provision. And so the idea is if you're a solar developer, a wind developer, or any other type of bespoke developer, they give you access to one software that allows you to uh, manage that entire process far more cogently with less paperwork and just everything being integrated into that kind of context. But also on the back end of that, they've built uh, several streams of financing that can feed into that, which therefore hopefully can accelerate the development of these types of energy products that you've mentioned. Final one that I'll mention here that I think is also interesting for listeners to check out is Bbox. Um, they have this type of integrated packaging of kind of, you know, bespoke energy uh, solutions as well that um, uh, fits very much in this. Given that, I feel like this is a fantastic segue to move onto uh, Frontier Capital Partners and the kind of investment motion for looking at real assets, not just in Zambia, but across Africa as a whole. Um, Can you share more on uh, the kind of growth of the portfolio there and the types of um, or like one or two case studies of investments you've made at Frontier Capital Partners? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, some of the things we're looking at there, uh, and, you know, we've spent quite a lot of time diligencing deals as opposed to actually making them. And one of the reasons is that we wanted to, A, build a framework for understanding how to evaluate good deals from bad. Um, and for sort of like determining how to allocate capital as well, because uh, there's unlimited potential opportunities, right? Um, but there's limited uh, ability to allocate capital. Um, so the way we've sort of like been thinking about how we want to run our business in that particular instance is to be very well informed about like what value looks like. Um, so that being said, the sort of deals that we've been diligencing and are making are mostly in the tourism space. So we're looking at a few hotels, um, mostly boutique-style hotels in Zambia. Uh, We've also been looking at energy, um, so providing alternatives to charcoal, um, uh, because Zambia's most common energy form is is actually charcoal, um, because most households are A, poor, and B, um, informal. And, and so charcoal usage is pretty high. Um, but that means that, you know, deforestation is a sort of consequence of that. And so one of the things we've been looking at is how we could provide substitutes uh, to charcoal that are A, sustainable, and then B, fit within the sort of like budgets that people are used to um, and, uh, and also don't require significant capital investment by the customer. So for instance, cook stove, uh, cook stoves are like a common solution that people uh, usually think of. Um, but in, in our view, um, the problem with cook stove is that 
A, they tend to be expensive, and B, uh, the capital cost of, uh, of gas um, is typically a little bit too high for a poor household to afford. Um, so we're looking at ways of, of like dealing with that. Um, so yeah, I think that has meant that we've been focused a lot on so like doing awesome. more research. Um, on the tourism side, it's much more straightforward. So we're looking at three deals. Um, one in the Lower Zambezi National Park or GMA rather. Um, so far, it's a it's a lodge. Uh, a second is a hotel in uh, Lusaka. Um, and the third is a hotel in the north of the country. Fantastic. And in that case, I feel like um, what, what, what one question here is, uh, what are some of the lessons you've learned as you've been building that you know framework for capital allocation and um, as you've been engaging in that kind of diligence in motion? Uh, has anything particularly surprised you as you've kind of gone about that in terms of opportunities that surprise you or risks that you weren't aware of before that you now have kind of become far more intimate with? Yeah, I mean, like COVID was a very sort of like uh, eye-opening experience. Granted, it was like a super outlier experience as well. Um, So we went from being really hot on tourism to being not sure about tourism because the world closed up and now we're kind of like hot on tourism again. Um, You know, and the process of not being hot on tourism, we ended up exploring other things like, okay, what about carbon markets, right? Because we have quite a lot of land that we've been aggregating. And that's another thing I forgot to mention. We've been aggregating a lot of rural land. Um, And so the thesis there was that as the population of Zambia and Africa at at large um, increase, there's going to be a so like disproportionate effect on the capital value of land in general. Um, and so anyone that's holding significant amounts of it, you know, stands to sort of like see significant capital appreciation on the, on the books uh, from that. But, you know, the question then becomes, how do you cash flow it? Right. And there's a bunch of different things you can do. You can sort of like look at, uh, pastoral farming as a means of of unlocking value, and we've actually sort of like been experimenting around that with um, the goat farm um, that we own. Um, you could do dairy, uh, and we've done just quite a lot of dairy transactions. Uh, ended up sort of like pausing on actually making one. We have also explored carbon, and you know that's one we actually like quite a lot. So um, we expect to be spending a lot of time aggregating. Um, forest land for that purpose. Interesting. What are your thoughts on the state of agribusiness um, across the continent as a whole? One narrative that I hear is that both um, West Africa and East Africa, but in particular West Africa, is incredibly fertile um, in con- and, and it's not performing in terms of its output and yield as one would expect given its uh, geological kind of fertility. And um, in contrast, one thing that I kind of found interesting, I've been reading this book recently on the history of commodity trading and it spoke about you know these these market leaders that own 50 60 percent of the u.s market and the kind of western markets um cargill louis dreyfus and a couple of others and it spoke about in the last 30 years there have been a couple of agribusiness um uh, firms that have emerged from asia as they've kind of engaged in far more mechanized um 
agricultural practice as well, and they've engaged in more urbanization. And so they've got three or four kind of, you know, regional winners that also have these global bases. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on the nature of agribusiness entrepreneurship, consolidation, or just opportunities? Is that something you guys are looking at? Is that something you find interesting? Yeah, I think it's like super interesting. And for for a lot of reasons, um, I think you've just alluded to them. It's like, A, you've got a growing population. B, in many countries, you've got like really fertile soils. Um, so like the, the base layer of the opportunity stack is there. I think what often isn't appreciated is just how technical farming can be. And uh, the skills, you know, often just aren't there, right? So at uh, Here's an example, right? Uh, a dairy farmer in Wisconsin in the U.S. farming Holstein cows, you know, can expect yields of 40, 50 liters per day per cow, right? You are lucky to get 15 liters from the same sort of like cow type in Zambia. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a really good farmer, maybe you're seeing 30 liters uh, that's really, really impressive, right? And the reason is the genetics, you know, in in the US are just like better. B, the so like feed is much better. C, the like managerial standards are far better. Um, and the level of mechanization is also significantly better. So like the, like the cow is literally on a... <laughs> on a schedule that is very tightly managed. And you could have one farmer easily managing three, four, 500 cows by themselves. In Africa, you probably have like 10 shepherds, and like, or you know, cowboys, whatever you want to call them, um, managing the same number of cows. Um, so I think that speaks to productivity and, and skills in particular. So um, I think that's you know where a lot of the assumptions start breaking down. The second thing is, um, food in sorry for the noise as my son um, that's wonderful don't worry <laughs> so food is uh, food products are um, they're not typically exported in Africa so you know that's um, problematic because it means that you are um, sort of if you're a foreign investor and you're looking to like participate in the agri space, you are going long on the local currency in a very material way, right? Um, because your project will probably take you know eight, ten years to sort of like cover its its costs, uh, its capital costs, um, and during that same period of time, you're going to be exposed to inflation. You're going to be exposed to you know foreign exchange movements. Um, you know, because you've gone super long. And I think that is probably one of the biggest reasons why you're not seeing as much investment in, in the spaces you would expect. What's the reason behind the um, non-exporting or the typical practice of not exporting agriculture rural products from Africa? Well, there are some exports taking place. So for instance, like honey, you know, is often exported. Um, blueberry. Asher exactly cashew like coffee so it, it's not a a universally true statement like there are cash crops which are exported but then if you're you know like a dairy farmer odds are you're producing for the local 
uh, dairy processor, right? If you're like a vegetable farmer, odds are you're producing for local consumption. Um, and that's what a lot of like the opportunity appears to be for people is that they're saying, okay, the demographic um, structure is such that you want to invest in agriculture because you've got growing demand for food, right? And actually, if you want to have like a, uh, if you want to structure your portfolio in a way that is risk off, you're probably better off investing in like coffee plantations or, or, or something of the sort. Um, and then maybe um, hedging the, you know, to, to hedge um, your local currency exposure on things like maybe like dairy, um, you have the, the cash crop. Okay, interesting. Um, are there any folks that you think are putting out particularly valuable guides or thoughts on agribusiness as a whole as I'm just getting started in learning about this space? If there's any recommended resources, would love to, you know, take a look at it. Sorry, could you repeat the question? Oh, yeah. Are, are there any resources that you found particularly useful for learning about this sector in particular? Huh. Um, yeah, I think McKinsey is quite good. So, like, they do a, a lot of, like, research papers. Um, the World Bank is also quite good. They do quite a lot. They sponsor quite a lot of research in ag in, in, in Africa. Um, FAO's website is quite good. Um, you know, and, and offers a lot of like random information that you know you wouldn't really expect there. Um, yeah, I think those are like top three. Um, Harvard Business Review's case studies are also quite useful. Um, we've like leaned on that quite a lot. So, for instance, we learned about a business in Argentina called Cresud, so C R E S U D, um, and that they're like a large. Um, agribusiness they farm more than 1 million acres of land across latin america um they used to have a large dairy business and they've structured a lot of their investments in the sort of thematic i mentioned before where there are portions which are domestic facing like for instance they might be producing like sugar right um that would be for consumption like domestically but then there will also be portions which are export uh, focused so beef in their case um, uh, you know, and then they also like de-risk the ag by thinking about it as a real estate investment. So they'll buy, um, they'll improve, they'll cash flow it, and they might sell, right? And then just rinse and repeat. Um, so they 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 also develop commercial property as a consequence because they see agriculture as a real estate business um and so they're like you know in some instances you might not actually buy a piece of land to use for agricultural purposes but you might put residential housing on it um and we quite like that view of you know farming as a real estate opportunity as opposed to just like a, a vocation um so yeah, HBR is quite good. Awesome. Um, I will check those out. I appreciate you sharing that case study. Um, I think we should leap uh, prefer- proverbially into the future and dig into um, Achilles Ventures and uh, the portfolio you're building there and the companies that you're kind of spinning out um, and investing in. Could you share uh, one or two companies that you think are symbolically 
emblematic of what uh, Achilles is trying to do as a full stack venture uh, firm. Sure. Um, so Achille invested in this business called Brass Banking in Nigeria. So it's basically um, Revolut for small businesses, um, small and medium-sized businesses, and even startups um, in Nigeria. In addition, the, the, this company has recently rolled out, um, again, a, a version of Revolut, but for professionals. and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's focused around the needs of professionals in, in Nigeria. Um, so, you know, they're basically trying to solve banking, you know, um, by saying, you know, the traditional banking doesn't really think about the needs of a small business. So, like a clear example of that would be saying um, most businesses have to figure out how to run payroll, right? So you might have, you know, banking relationship, but then you use some other sort of piece of software to run payroll, um, and then you end up having like this mix of licenses and, and and apps that you're using to do all these different things, and they've just rolled that entire process into one experience. Um, so I think that's the sort of like thing that Achille wants to be involved in, right? Things that are uh, things that transform people's lives for the better using tech. Um, so right now, something that is like super exciting that we're working on is building a sort of uh, banking venture for Uber drivers um, um, in West Africa. Um, and again, that's you know quite interesting because um, it's doing this in a way that is quite unusual um, by uh, partnering with several other stakeholders to not just bank these Uber drivers, but also provide them sort of EVs. So the cost of their, um, so like operating expenses would come down because they're swapping expensive fuel for cheaper electricity. Um, we're providing them access to uh, capital to buy cars, which they typically wouldn't do before. Um, and we're doing this with like Uber's competitors, not Uber. Um, so that's a pretty interesting business uh, because it's quite socially transformative across several layers. Um, so, you know, those are two examples of some of the things that Achilles is involved in. Exciting. What do you think most people get wrong about uh, early stage venture investing in Africa? Um, I think it's still very early, right? Um, so there's been a lot of hype over the last several years. Um, you know, people, you know, really excited about the fact that Africa now has a few unicorns and um, there's obviously a lot of talent. Uh, the thing that I think has been missing is um, volume of exits has been low. And so I think Africa has to start... Um, proving that as a capital destination um it's it's worth the risk that people are taking on it um, and that's not happening at, at the sort of like volumes um one would like so i hope that over the next couple of years we should be seeing more exits the problem right now is that there's a timing issue because we're in a down market um a lot of like exciting businesses are now like five six years old so they're on the age where you'd have expected an exit to be taking place, but the market timing isn't just quite there yet. 
Um, so, you know, that's something that I find concerning. Um, and I hope people can sort of like overcome that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's one thing. The second thing is um, Africa is like quite atomized. So, you know, it's 54 countries with very different laws, very different markets, and, and therefore building at scale in Africa is quite challenging because you have to, you know, deal with 54 governments. Um, whereas India, right, uh, doesn't have those same sort of like challenges. You do have states and, you know, the states can have very different uh, situations and regulations as well. Um, but at least at the same time, it's, it's like a common market, right? So um, I think that is another challenge people don't fully appreciate when you know, Africa is being compared to uh, peers and the rest of the world. Um, that, that the jurisdictional disadvantages that we face here are still quite significant. Interesting. So do you think in lieu of one jurisdictional uh, complexity and two maybe slightly smaller market sizes, um, do you think that the model of swinging for public markets exits is the right approach for venture capital within these markets? Or do you think something that kind of segues to more middle market cash flowing PE-esque firms is a more um, realistic option for building these types of uh, companies in these markets? Um, I think PE also has its problems uh, because because of the way the sort of like global PE uh, ecosystem is funded at the moment, uh, and you know it's the same problem VC has. So most VCs allocating capital in Africa are funded with capital that's not domiciled here, right? So it's European money, it is US money. And more often than not, the funds themselves are either European or, or American, right? The same is true of most PE houses. Um, a lot of the capital outside of South Africa, a lot of the capital in PE is not African, right? And that means you are dealing with FX devaluation potential. You are dealing with um, the ability of a market to absorb your dollars. So $500 million, for instance, in the context of the US isn't a lot of money. $500 million in the context of Africa is a lot of money, right? Um, yeah. And the very few tickets that you can actually even write at that scale in Africa, like a business that has a value of two, three, four hundred million million in Africa is a big business in Africa, but it's tiny in the context of the US or, or Europe. So aggregating those sorts of deals is quite challenging. Um, and I think the way you resolve that is something that Helios has been doing quite nicely. Um, so Helios is an Africa-focused PE fund. And instead of thinking about private equity in the traditional sort of like buyout um, paradigm where you buy a business and then you sort of like wait a couple of years, um, you know, and then you exit um, and hopefully, A, the fact that it was a leveraged buyout with a low cap cost of capital and it's been able to achieve some growth means that your IRR on that looks really nice at the end of like, a, say, seven, eight years. Um, that model is very hard to do in Africa because, A, USD capital is cheaper than local currency capital, but more, like, more often than not, your business earns in local currency, right? So if you borrow a lot of USD um, in the buyout structure in Africa, 
you're actually exposing your business to a lot of risk, right? In a devaluation potential like scenario, you suddenly could be wiped out. Um, so you can't reuse that playbook. Instead, what people are doing is they're aggregating a lot of small deals via what are known as investment platforms. So an example of that would be, say, a telco towers business, right? So you buy a large telco towers business in Nigeria, and then um, you buy another business in Ghana, and you buy another one in Zambia, you buy one in Kenya, and all these, you start aggregating them under a single like SPV or, or brand. And then suddenly you've got quite a large player that you've built. And this large player with sufficient scale and market, um, so like share, might be able to command a, a premium in its valuation because it's offering people something unique, which is range, right? Um, so you can then exit from that large business that you've spent the last couple of years building. Um, you can also use that scale to achieve better pricing in uh, like pricing terms in your negotiations with suppliers. Um, you can use that sizing to get better local currency uh, financing terms. Um, so, you know, the, basically PE guys are having to become operators in the context of Africa. And that's something that we haven't quite seen happen in the venture space yet. But I believe that it is more likely than not. I think what we're going to see over the next couple um, cycles is more venture studios that look like, say, rocket internet in, emerging in Africa than is all like traditional venture fund uh, structure that we've seen elsewhere in the world. Awesome. Uh, on that topic, what are your thoughts on Investor AB? I know this is something we may have exchanged an email over when it comes to interesting and uh, important high leverage structures for building companies um, in emerging markets. Uh, do you have any thoughts on them that you want to share? Um, so could you just repeat that again? Yeah, sure. So um, do, do you have any thoughts on Investor AB, the Swedish company, as an inspiration for these types of, again, this is different to the PE thing we mentioned before, mm-hmm. but as an example of a conglomerate, that is able to build its own infrastructure for additional things to be spun out of it. Um, I was just wondering, do, do, you, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share on that company? Yeah, I, I love the business. Um, and, and you know, it's it's actually an inspiration for a lot of the <laughs> businesses I'm in. So they all share a common motif, which is they're all building portfolios of things, right? So um, Teba Investment Management, for instance, um, you know, it's it's looking at building in Kwashi, but you know, we're starting to actually also develop um, other people's land, you know, as a developer. So we're building portfolios of these land development projects. Um, we're looking at uh, sort of like common investments with other entities. So Tebe and Frontier Capital Partners are co-developing the carbon projects I talked about earlier. Um, then FCP obviously is looking at its own portfolio of things. Uh, Achilles is a portfolio business. And, uh, you know, for me personally, a lot of my thinking around how to construct these portfolios is is a consequence of studying business like Investor AB, um, where ultimately you're looking to figure out what your cash engine is 
And that cash engine then so that creates an internal fund that you can use to aggregate more investments, right? So you can then originate, you can buy, um, and and then you keep on growing the portfolio. Incredible. I'm also very inspired by uh, that firm. Um, final three questions here. So one is, could you share your theory on the uh, African development state? I think you wrote a piece about this recently as well. Um, yeah, so that's a really big, big topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's, it's one I'm still thinking about quite actively. And, and in many regards, I think uh, I think Africa is not in a very unique situation where it regards this issue. If you think about what has happened in other countries, in especially Asia, I think they're having to grapple with the same questions. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at the so like uh, if you look at Pakistan, right, uh, as a country, it's actually not so different to Nigeria, right. You you have a sort of like ruling class that is, you know, cycling between military juntas and democracy, right? Um, you have these sort of like very entrenched political families that have been part of its sort of like uh, chronicle, <laughs> right, from the beginning through to the current day, and that, again, that's very similar to a country like Ghana or, or, or Nigeria. Um, if you look at Malaysia, I actually think that they have like a political structure that is probably more reflective of what should be the case in Africa, but is not, where there is this balance between um, the customary so like nobility uh, who are still very much a part of day-to-day life in Africa, but hold no formal, like, and constitutional role in society, uh, whereas in Malaysia they do, right? And then that is sort of like juxtaposed with a uh, sort of like parliamentary democracy. I think that's probably what we need to be seeing more of in, in Africa. I think part of the reason why Africa is sort of like in this current situation is that it hasn't grappled with its own identity um, because so much time was spent under the sort of like colonial uh, framework um, uh, sort of like denouncing those customary elements as being backwards. And so a lot of African countries are striving to be like much more European in their development style. Um, but they're not necessarily being true to their sort of culture and, and the way they see the world. Um, and, you know, an example of this is this, right? So like recently, uh, several African countries have gone to... Um, Ukraine and Russia, uh, Zambia included, to sort of like advocate for peace, right? And part of the rationale uh, rationale for uh, doing this is to say that, look, your conflict is affecting global commodity prices, especially food, and that is affecting us, right? It's, it's creating inflation and it's making life quite miserable for many of us in Africa. So can you resolve your problem so that, you know, we're okay? And that is a very African way to see the world, right? In that you're saying, um, look, we're together in this problem. We are party to your problem, even though the quarrel is not primarily ours. 
And so we are asking you to consider us, okay, as you grapple with your with your conflict. Uh, that is not a European way to see conflict. It is an African way of seeing conflict, right? But it doesn't necessarily uh, grok with other people in the world, right? Because they don't necessarily see the world that way. Um, but it's I find it quite ironic because um, in perceiving the world in our own cultural terms, we haven't yet quite gotten to a stage where we can actually also perceive our own institutions on our own terms. Because then I think if we're able to do that, it, it would force people to start learning how to build institutions proper, as opposed to copying and pasting or so like being instructed on how to do it by multilateral organizations or think tanks or, um, you know, not-for-profits elsewhere in the world, which is kind of like the position that of Africa is in now. Um, so, again, if you look at India as a, as a sort of comparable, um, like you've got Sanskrit, you know, usage pretty much everywhere. And so like these sort of like local um, alphabet. And I think that is in part um, sort of like reaching to your own identity and starting to like build a civilization on your own terms. Um, and I think that that is the substrate upon which a development state can then be built. You, of course, there's also a very opposite um, view of the world. Uh, and I think the Singapore story would be the, the opposite of this, which basically says it doesn't matter you know, what we were. It matters what we want to become. And so we're going to copy from everywhere else where it's worked. And we're going to be very diligent about following through on um, the implementation of what we copy, you know, from end to end. And we're going to do it uh, very professionally. I think that can work too, uh, to the extent that you truly sort of like incorporate that way of thinking into how you do everything in your society. Um, but I think that is predicated on having a very sophisticated and, and very able means of educating people. And the problem is that we in Africa haven't quite gotten there because if we did, then it becomes a very academic issue, right? Whether you want to create your own institutions or whether you want to copy and paste, you'd still be starting from the same base, which is education. Um, well, yeah, that's a long way of sort of saying that, you know, I think um, one of the things that needs to be solved for is is education because that then has second order effects which are positive and that regardless of which path you choose to take um, you're creating a cadre of highly skilled individuals who are able to either build an institution from their own terms of reference or to copy it from someone else's terms of reference but in either case they're able to do it because they're skilled individuals I love that. Um, it reminds me of this documentary I watched a while back called Sinofuturism, um, where it talks about, you know, uh, they, they, they talk about development with Chinese characteristics. And in this, in this documentary in particular, the thing that they point to is the sci-fi aesthetic of what China's, tech, China's techno future 
may or may not look like. And um, I think that for various emerging regions, be it China, India, um, the various kind of, you know, su- potential superpowers within Africa, um, like Nigeria, Ghana, etc., is um, a very compelling, uh, grand, you know, civilization building narrative uh, in some sense. Um, second question and penultimate question is, who are some of the founders or entrepreneurs that have kind of inspired you or even people in general when it comes to how you think about uh, your kind of daily life, your operations, your business, and your kind of, you know, aims at building a legacy in the longer term? Mm, uh, great question. Um, I think investor AB uh, and sort of like family that built it, um, you know, is one group of, of people that, you know, I draw inspiration from, uh, especially given the sort of like very long range um, thinking that they've um, been involved in. Um, so that's one. Uh, and Warren Buffett is another, um, you know, uh, again, for the sort of same reasons, very long range. Um, yeah, so like the Wallenbergs and, and um, Buffett. Um, JP Morgan is another. Um, John D. Rockefeller is another. Um, yeah, I think these are the sort of types that immediately come to mind. Um, so, you know, and, and one of the reasons I'm mentioning these types of people is, you know, they the built their businesses in the context of like a sort of 19th, early 20th century um, world. And I think that's the most sort of similar context to Africa, um, you know, I can, I can think of elsewhere in the world, you know, like Africa is certainly not in the 21st century yet. Um, if, if you think about its sort of place in the world today and the, the level of industrialization it's achieved, it's much more so like 19th century. Um, and, and, and so, you know, folks like those who are like at the, um, very vanguard of industrial development in their societies, um, or creating you know new financial systems, um, modernizing finance. Um, those are the sort of people I, I tend to draw inspiration from. I love that. In particular, the term "vanguard of industrialization" or the "industrial vanguard." That's uh, incredible phrasing. Um, final question for you is, are there any recommended resources or calls to action that you want to share with uh, the listeners of this podcast? Yeah, um, I'll, you know, probably say, you know, if you can, um, like, in understanding Africa, like, like, read more resources on like medieval Europe, you know, around like the Renaissance period, um, read on like industrial stage, um, so like US and, and, and Europe, because you, you find elements of all those times in Africa today, right, where like there's a reemergence of identity um, around art. Um, so, you know, I, I think what's happening with, um, say, Afrobeat is an example of that, like Afrobeat is like huge everywhere in the world. Um, 
but you know that's just Nigerians finding themselves. Um, so you know that's like what happened in in Renaissance Europe. Um, uh, so there's this great book on the Medici, for instance, which I'd recommend. It's called Medici. Um, so yeah, um, those would be my recommendations. Quite vague, I know, um, but you know that's that's the. I think thinking about things thematically as opposed to like super granular is probably like best. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for making the time for this podcast. Muya. deeply appreciated. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a great pleasure.